0: So we just finished a 10-week sermon series called The Path of Jesus, Part 1. And today we begin The Path of Jesus, Part 2. We just finished the Beatitudes. Um, All of this is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And now we continue with the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus has finished giving these blessings to people. Now we continue with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. We'll be doing that for the next 12 weeks. And it's going to be really good and challenging just to sit under these words of Jesus and see how he might shape us. Um, So this morning, we arrive at a pivotal point in the Sermon on the Mount, but also in the whole narrative and canon of the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Today, we arrive at a pivotal point. Now, there's a literary device. I don't even know if literary device is the right word. I'll have to check with some of my English teacher friends, Thomas and Rachel. Feel free to correct me um, after this. There's a literary device that I love, and it happens when you've experienced a story and then something happens, usually towards the end of the story, that when you experience that thing, it changes everything else. Do you know what I mean? I don't even I don't know if it has a name, that sort of thing, but like it changes the way that you read everything you've read or experienced before. It changes the way that you experience everything after this point. Like it, it illuminates and sheds light on and changes everything. I'll give you an example of my favorite, one of my favorite times that this happens. Raise your hand if you have not yet read or seen the Harry Potter books or movies. And you want to, okay? You haven't experienced them yet, and you still like you're still like I'm a decade or so late to the party, but I still want to be a part of the party. Okay, well if that's you, uh, I see a few hands. If that's you, I'm about to give you a tremendous spoiler. So here's a spoiler alert. And if you want to enjoy the experience, you can close your eyes, and I like I'm just going to show a picture, and I won't. I give it away with my words, okay? So feel free to close your eyes so you can experience the fullness of Harry Potter. Um, so this is, <laughs> this is one of my favorite, uh, favorite times that this happens in a story. Go ahead and show the picture. Are you with me? Yeah? Like when this happens, you can take the picture down if your eyes are closed. Don't open them yet. Open them. When this happens, it changes everything. I reread, it was a great experience. It was winter, a couple winters ago. It was so great, like um, the leaves had fallen, it was cold and barren, and I'm reading Harry Potter. That was a great experience. I did that a couple winters ago, rereading Harry Potter. I would read them, I had seen the movies, I reread them. And like this changed the way that I interacted with the characters and interacted with the stories and experienced all that was happening, right? Well, this, this text Jesus saying these words in the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like that, except I would say that these sort of literary devices point to this one. Like, this is the true this is a true time that this happened. So it's, it's so important and it's so big. I'm so excited to dig in with you all this morning. So we're just going to work through this kind of verse by verse and, and see what Jesus has to say to us. Um, so look with me at verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says that I have come to abolish or destroy or undo or overthrow. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So, word on the street was probably that Jesus, this kind of revolutionary rabbi, had shown up. And this guy, like, this guy is here to undo the scriptures that we all hold on to as sacred, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Like this guy is here to undo all of that. It makes sense that people might be thinking this and accusing Jesus of this. Think about it. The people who held on to the scriptures the tightest were the Pharisees. Like they lived by every word that they found in the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, and Jesus comes on the scene and he is constantly like, going off on them. He calls them snakes and a brood of vipers and hypocrites. That's crazy. Like those, those aren't things that we usually say to one another, right? So Jesus stands in such opposition to the people who seem to love the scriptures so deeply. Also, think about like this point. In the Sermon on the Mount, like context, Jesus had just given blessings to the people who seem furthest from what we see in the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, right? The people who the Pharisees say like, hey, these aren't the law keepers. These are the law breakers. They're the poor. They're the powerless. They're the people who don't have it put together. They're the mourners. They're the persecuted. And Jesus is saying to those people who seem very distant from the way that the Pharisees live, Jesus is saying to them, like, hey, you're actually, like, you're actually blessed. The kingdom that I'm here to bring forth and usher in, like, it's yours. So Jesus, like, it, it totally makes sense that people would be thinking and even saying and conversing with one another, like, hey, this guy's here, and this guy's on the scene, and he's here to undo all of this stuff. So Jesus, at this moment, wants to set... The record straight, and he says, "No, I'm not here to abolish the law or the prophets. In fact, look at verse 18: until heaven and earth pass away, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota, not the smallest, not the seemingly most insignificant detail will pass away from the law until all is accomplished." In other words, Jesus has a really high view of his scriptures, our old testament. Like Jesus says like these words, our old testament to us sometimes it just seems antiquated and outdated and archaic. Jesus says this is true and valid and good and faithful and I hold on to this and everything you see here like this is this is trustworthy good stuff. This is the word of the Lord. That's what Jesus says about his Bible, the scriptures, the Hebrew Old Testament. So Jesus isn't here to abolish the law of the prophets. Instead, he says what? That he's here to fulfill, fulfill them. This word fulfill um, is a tricky word in the original language in Greek, and scholars and commentators have lots of theories, and they have lots of conversations, and they're ivory towers about what this word play rao really means. I I think it means three things. And these aren't like, some commentators say these are mutually exclusive things, like it can't mean, but I I think it means a combination of three things that that are, this is kind of the pivotal moment. This is very important. First, I think Jesus is telling us when he says, I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to abolish, but to fulfill them. I think he's saying that they point to me, the law, the prophets, our scriptures, they point to me. Genesis 3.15, this word that the Lord gives about an offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, it's me. Abraham's offspring that you've been waiting for, you, you thought it was just this nation, but it's more than that. It's, it's me. Like the psalmist's the one that they were waiting for, the prophets, the one that they were waiting for, the Messiah, the messianic figure, the king that they were talking about, it's me. Moses, you thought he was the greatest prophet, but I'm here as the true prophet. Levi isn't the true and great priest. I'm here as the true priest. You thought David was the true and ideal king, but I'm here as the king. Everything you see in your scriptures, they point to me. Second thing I think Jesus is saying is that I Perfectly obey everything you see in the scriptures. Like, I am the perfectly righteous one. One commentator says that Christ's righteousness is so radical, not because it's new, but because he lived it. He lived it. Jesus is the one who perfectly loved his neighbor. He is the righteous one. And then I think the third thing, is um, this Greek word means um, fulfill, to bring out the full weight or significance of something, to clarify, to elucidate, to illuminate. So I think Jesus is telling us I'm here to explain, to teach, to show you what the law really meant all along in a new and fresh way that you'll finally be able to understand and live in. Jesus is here to fulfill the law. I'm here to teach it. I'm here to illuminate it. I'm here to make sense of it. Um, there's an ancient church father, just so you can know that I'm not making this up as someone in the 21st century. Um, John Chrysostom lived in the fourth century. He was uh, the Archbishop of Constantinople, and here 's what he said jesus words were no repeal of the former. This is good, this is beautiful right here, um, but a drawing out and a filling up of them. They weren 't a repeal of the former, but they were a drawing out and a filling up of them. So here 's what Jesus is doing. This is what we 're going to experience over the next few weeks together as we sit under these words of Jesus. Jesus is elevating the conversation about the law and the prophets. Jesus is inspiring the imaginations of his listeners so that they'll be inspired and moved and changed by the words of Jesus and live such lives that inspire the imaginations of the watching world. Did you get, let me say that again. Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's inspiring the imaginations of his listeners so that they'll live such changed lives and inspire the imaginations of a watching world. They'll be a source of refreshment and hope in the world. At the core, these are a lot of people say that these are the ethics of Jesus or these are kingdom ethics. And at the core, the ethics of Jesus, kingdom ethics, are missional ethics. These are missional ethics. I heard, I was listening to Shadbury do some teaching yesterday, and he used this illustration that was so good that, that I just had to, had to use this morning. Um, he got it from uh, Amy Sherman in her book, Kingdom Calling. And does anybody go to, um, does anybody go to Baskin-Robbins? Yeah, a couple people. Wow, man, that is disappointing. Um, Froyo is a fad. Ice cream is forever, is what I say. Um, That's right. So there's an amazing thing at Baskin-Robbins, and other ice cream parlors have picked it up. And you go in, and you're overwhelmed because there are coolers and coolers of different flavors of ice cream. There are 31 flavors, right? And in order to help you decide which ice cream you want and which ice cream... You don't want, what do they have for you? Samples. That's right. Um, I've been to ice cream parlors with Robin before, and he is not shy about taking advantage of the samples that they'll give him. Uh, I'm always a little uncomfortable. Like, is there a limit here? Like, I'm a rule follower, you know? Um, So, at Baskin-Robbins, they give you a pink spoon, a pink spoon, a little tiny, cute pink spoon. Have you all seen those? And the point of the peak Spoon is to show you what you don't want, but also does a couple of important things. One, it gives you a foretaste of what you actually want. Like you taste that mint chocolate chip and you're like, man, this is just a tiny experience of that. It's a foretaste of the fullness that's to come. And it also shows you that you want more of it. I'm not satisfied with this little, this little morsel. Like I want scoops of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Now here's the deal. You, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are like, you're like, you not are, but you're like a Baskin-Robbins pink sample spoon. Because as you're living out these ethics of Jesus, you're giving the world a foretaste of what's to come your friends, and your neighbors, and your family, and you're showing them, like, hey, don't you want more of this? Don't you want to be a part of this? Like, isn't this good? Isn't this beautiful? Like, people who aren't raging at one another, and hating one another, and people who work through their differences, and they're not living lives that are filled and um, dictated by lustful thoughts and intentions. Like, don't you want more of this? At the core The ethics of Jesus are missional ethics. And this has been the story all along. Like Jesus isn't here to undo anything. Think think about it. All the way back in the beginning, all the way back in the beginning, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates humanity and the intention, the purpose for humanity was to be a kingdom of priests in the world ruling and reigning over creation on God's behalf, mediating God's presence as priests. You're a priest, mediating God's presence to the world. And God gave humans boundaries, right? Live underneath my authority. I want you to do these things. I want you not to do this thing. But humans rejected the vocation that God had given them. Humans rejected of the calling that God had called them to so god calls a man abram and he has a family and actually in exodus 19 god tells moses this people is to be for me a kingdom of priests A people who will rule and reign the world on my behalf. A people who will mediate my presence to the world. But again, Israel, time and time and time and time and time again, rejected their calling that God had given them. They rejected their vocational purpose. And now Jesus is on the scene. And he's like, the kingdom is here. And I'm calling to myself a kingdom of priests who will rule and reign on my behalf who will mediate God's presence to the world. Now, here's how I want you to live your lives. These are missional ethics for your good, as you're going to see over the next few weeks. These are for your good, but they're also for the good of the world. Look at verse 19. Therefore, therefore, with all this in mind, whoever relaxes one of the least of these my commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. It's so simple. It's kind of like, okay, of course, that makes sense. The only proper response to this word which Jesus brings with him from eternity is simply to do it. It's so simple. Jesus expects and Jesus desires that his followers will actually do what he says. And you may think, of course, of course, of course, but as we're going to see, many, many of you don't live this way one-sixth, one-sixth of the entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus actually saying, hey, I want you to hear what I'm telling you and obey what I'm telling you. He closes the Sermon on the Mount intentionally. Like, everything Jesus is saying and the way he's piecing it together is intentional and purposeful and thoughtful. Um, He closes the Sermon on the Mount with the the parable of the man who built his house on stone. You remember the story? And the fool who built his house on on the sand. And Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and who does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, on an unstable foundation. And when the winds and the rains and the floods came, that house was washed away and great was the fall of it. One-sixth of the entire sermon is Jesus saying, hey, I actually want you to listen to what I'm telling you and obey me. But listen to this. There's a difference in doing the things that Jesus says and obeying Jesus by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a difference in doing the things that Jesus says to do and actually hearing and obeying Jesus by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I grew up, and for a long time, I was very good at doing the things that Jesus says to do. I grew up as someone, and I still do, um, a person who finds my um, Worth and significance in the things that I do. And so I grew up like killing it when it came to following rules. Um, The church that I grew up, my family worships with, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was in youth group, we had a Sunday night, um, youth group night, and at the end of the school year, they actually gave perfect attendance awards for people who came every Sunday night and participated in everything that the youth group had to offer. (laughs) And looking back at the end of every year, I was the only one who got to stand in front of the church and receive this perfect attendance award. And I don't say that like I'm really proud and glad for this. I say that because I found my worth. I found my significance, not in who I was, but in the things I did, and I was really good at doing the things that Jesus says to do, but I didn't love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when I was a senior in high school, I grew up in Grenada, Mississippi, and uh, small town, small school, everyone at Grenada High School goes to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, or Mississippi State. That's just the way it is. Everyone goes to one of those two places, except for every year there are a handful of outliers who go to these other random universities like Delta State University or Mississippi College. And I was one of those random outliers. So, my senior year of high school, all of my friends were going to Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, and I was going to Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi. And I didn't know any of the other people who were going to Delta State, and they didn't know me. And so my last semester of high school, I had this this thing going on in my heart and in my head of, I'm done with this. Has anyone ever been there? Like, I've tried so hard for so long to keep all of the rules, and I'm done. Like, what's the point of this? And no one I know and no one who knows me is going to school with me, so this is my shot. I can be whoever I want to be, right? Like, it won't be too shocking for people if the new Delta State University Drew isn't the rule-following, Jesus-loving Drew that we know Doing the things that Jesus says to do without loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, I, I would just end the story there, but that's a cliffhanger. <laughs> um, praise God that, like, I was, that's, that's what I wanted, but praise God that, that He is sovereign and I am not. Amen? Praise God that He is sovereign and you are not. Amen? Because uh, I got to Delta State and Like, it's nothing that I did. Like, I can look back and just see how God was weaving all of this together. Like, the people that I met, the person who lived across the hall from me in the dorms, they were all men who loved Jesus deeply. Like, they loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I grew in deep friendship with them. They're still some of my very best friends. And so I did experience, like, this change of heart. Like, I grew to love the Lord, my God, with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so my concern is that there are many of you who think, of course, of course, um, I'm not murdering people, and I don't hate people, of course, and I'm doing all of this. Like, I'm doing all of this. I'm living the ethics of Jesus. I'm living kingdom ethics. I'm living missional ethics, but I'm afraid that there are many of you who are missing out on the kingdom of heaven because you're doing the things that Jesus says, but it's from a heart that hasn't been changed And that's called externalism. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what the scribes do. And Jesus says in verse 20, look at this verse. Man, this is verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the scribes are the people who have it most put together. And Jesus says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the most righteous, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This word exceed is um, like the English word exceed doesn't really do it full justice. Um, Jesus is using this word that's intentionally bold and almost laughable. It means like exceed greatly, like significantly better your righteousness must be than the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees like unless your righteousness like really 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 exceeds like is so much better than the scribes and the pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven externalism that's the way the pharisees live like doing the things that God tells them to do, but missing God Himself. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs. That on the outside they're clean and neat and put together, but on the inside they're dead and rotting and nasty and putrid. Whitewashed tombs. Jesus says that they're like a cup or a plate that has been cleaned and polished and shined to perfection on the outside and looks so beautiful and righteous and put together but on the inside it's disgusting and filled with dirt everything about the pharisees is on the outside but at their core they don't have a heart that loves the lord their god with all their heart mind soul and strength and what jesus is after what Jesus is after is a different righteousness altogether. Jesus is after a better righteousness, a righteousness that comes from your heart. Unlike the way I grew up where I found my worth and my significance in the things I was doing, Jesus describes the inside of you, your interior, to shape the outside of you, your exterior. Jesus, desc- Jesus desires for you to be an integrous person, a person that has integrity, the insides of you match the outsides of you. Jesus desires that you would be a whole person, a person who loves the Lord your God. And because of that deep love inside of your heart, you're obeying him and living the life that he desires for you to live. Listen to this quote from Dallas Willard. It'll be on the screen. Follow along with me. It's, it's a little bit longer. The most constant whim historically, has been the disastrous idea that Jesus is here giving laws. For if that is all he is doing, they will certainly be laws that are impossible to keep. The keeping of laws turns out to be an inherently self-refuting aim. Rather, the inner self must be changed. Trying merely to keep the law is not wholly unlike trying to make an apple tree bear peaches by tying peaches to its branches. Jesus is after your heart. Jesus wants you to obey what he's telling you, but he wants you to do it from a heart that loves the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is why Jesus says that's the greatest commandment. And so over the next few weeks, as we look at these ethics of Jesus, that's what you're going to see is that Jesus is getting to the heart of these laws that we find in the Ten Commandments and throughout the Old Testament. Like it's not just about not killing your brother or your sister, though that's important. Jesus says, in your heart, don't even have hatred towards another human being. It's not just about the external thing, it's about what's going on on your insides. Jesus says, of course, you've heard it said, do not have um, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says it's, it's, it's not just this exterior thing, though that's important. Jesus says, I'm after your heart. Don't even lust after another person in your heart. So, look at yourself. And let me give you this diagnostic tool. Um, you might be living this sort of externalism of the Pharisees and scribes, if you were taken aback by and challenged by the last 10 weeks, the Beatitudes. The Pharisees and the scribes were so shocked, and not only shocked, they were outraged that Jesus would be pronouncing blessings over these people who externally look like they don't have anything together. They seem so far from keeping and obeying the law. But Jesus looks at them and says, actually, because of what's going on on your interior, you're closer to the kingdom. So, like, if I'm honest, I was challenged looking deeply at the Beatitudes. I was, I was challenged, and sometimes I found myself angry, And it's because I have this bent, like I know some of you do, towards externalism. And I don't want to miss out on the kingdom of God in our midst. And I don't want you to miss out on the kingdom of God in our midst. So look at your life and see if that's true of you. Now, there's another... um, there's another reason you might miss, miss out on the kingdom of God in your midst that I have to address, and it's a theological reason. A theological reason. A reason that I fell prey to for, um, for many years. Um, let me read again verse verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. This, this verse is so scandalous and outrageous. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, really, really exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a theological reason some of y'all might miss what Jesus has for you over these next few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, a theological reason that can be summed up like this. Three words, law versus grace. Law versus grace. Some of you may look at me and say, Drew, you are... Like, you think it's really important that I obey Jesus. That sounds to me a little legalistic. What about grace? And I would say, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I think that's what Jesus is telling you. And I don't think that's legalistic at all. Paul seems to, in Romans 6 and 7, Paul seems to speak very critically of the law. Um, we don't have time to really dive into Romans 6 and 7 now. You can read it when you go home. Um, but Paul, Paul speaks very critically, seemingly, against the law. And he tells people, he tells the Christians in Rome, like, you're no longer under the law. You're under grace. Law was death to me. Are we under the law? Like, do we need to really obey and follow what Jesus says here? Or are we true. We're under grace, right? And, okay, I'll I'll say this. That is, um, that is true about the law in general, in general. Um, scholars over the years have given, um, uses for the law, and one of those uses is what Paul is bringing out in Romans chapter 7. Stick with me here, because this is, this is important. Um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul seems to talk about the law as a mirror, um, Like the law shows you how bad you are and that you need Jesus, okay? So I would read um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I would read that and think like, well, I have no shot, right? And so Jesus is telling us like, and I'm the righteous one. Like you have no chance. You have no chance. So follow me and trust in me because I'm the one who perfectly obeys the law, Right? the law is a mirror. I look into the law and I see all my blemishes, all my flaws. And about the law in general, that is true. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I really wouldn't have known that I had um, a heart that was coveting unless I had the law tell me, don't covet. And when the law said that, I was convicted and I was challenged. It was like a mirror that helped me to see man, I need grace. I need Jesus. So that's true of the law in general, but that's only a sliver of what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. If you read it through those lens, you're going to miss out on so much life and richness that Jesus has for you. Listen to this. We're in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called his disciples, okay? The disciples of Jesus were already following him, like Jesus already loved them, like Jesus already um, showered them with grace, and now he gets to Matthew chapter 5, which if you're familiar with the story, the ark of scripture may sound familiar to you because The Sermon on the Mount is a recapitulation of all the laws of the Old Testament. It's a recapitulation of of God giving the laws to the people of Israel through Moses. Think about it. Do you remember the story of Exodus? God's people are in um, slavery and bondage and oppression in Egypt. They cry out to God, and God saves them. They experience salvation. God rescues them with his outstretched arm, the prophets say over and over. God redeems them. God so loves his people that he took action and he did something. He saved them. He redeemed them from Egypt. And then, and then God gave them the law through Moses. Do you see that? Yes, the law is a mirror, but that's only a part of it. And that's not the point of what Jesus has for you in the Sermon on the Mount. If it was, why? I wish Jesus would have just said, if that was the point, you can't do it, you can't be righteous enough, and I can because I'm God, so follow me, the end, close the Bible, let's, let's move on. But that's not what he does. He spends chapters and chapters and verses Many of those, one-sixth of those saying, hey, listen to what I'm saying and obey me. Salvation isn't the point, okay? This is for followers of Jesus. These are the ethics of Jesus. These are kingdom ethics, and these are missional ethics. Now, I'm going to close by reading a psalm, um, Psalm 1. Um, and if you're like really quick to turn there in your Bibles, I'm actually going to do something that seems a little shocking, and don't turn there with me. Don't turn to Psalm 1 with me. Um, The words won't be on the screen. I want simply to read these words over you and for you to listen because what I want you to hear, and this is the reason that these next few weeks, I believe, are so important for you and for our city Because Jesus lays out for us in the Sermon on the Mount a path. Like, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be my disciple? This is about discipleship. Then this is the path that I want you to walk. And should you walk this path, this is a path filled with blessings. This is a path filled with deep blessings. Nutrients for your soul. This is a good path. This is the path of flourishing. And I want that for you. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Will it be painful? Absolutely. It's not free from pain and heartache and tragedy. But walking on this path that Jesus has for us is good. And I want us, so badly, I want us to do this together. Let me read for you Psalm 1. Just listen to these. I'm just going to read half of it. Just listen to these three verses. You can close your eyes. If you want, you can um, kind of paint a picture in your mind. This is what I desire for Christ City Church, planted here in the city of Memphis. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, who can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may see your wonderful things that are in your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws. I reach out for your commands, which I love that I may meditate on your law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it day and night. That person, listen to this, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So may you be a person. May we be a church, a people, that is like a tree planted by streams of waters, planted in rich soil filled with nutrients, where there's blessing and life and abundance and fullness and richness that we may also bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us grace to walk the path of Jesus? Would we experience Richness and fullness of life. And springing forth from that, would we bear much fruit? Would our city, our family, our friends be so moved and encouraged and refreshed by us that they would have a foretaste of what's to come and that they would want more of it? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.